Welcome to 131 and Counting, a podcast where we cultivate, connect, and celebrate the achievements of women lawmakers and women policy and professionals. Count of women in Congress at this date is 148 out of 535. Enjoy the episode. Hi, all, and welcome to the second 131 and Counting podcast um, episode. We're so excited to have you guys here, and I'm really excited for you guys to all meet our guest today. Um, I'm going to let her introduce herself, just give us a brief introduction um, about her and her career in Washington, and then we will kind of get started with some questions. Great. Thank you, Grace. Um, first, thanks so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of 131 and Counting and its mission. Um, it's wonderful to be with you this afternoon. Um, I am Liz Albertine, pronounced correctly. I'm currently a policy advisor for DLA Piper Global Law Firm. I actually joined in March of this year, so I'm still relatively new. Um, but my focus is mainly appropriations, and, and I, but I also work on a range of policy for our clients, including defense, cybersecurity, renewable energy, all male-dominated fields in, in the policy arena. Um, prior, I worked on Capitol Hill for 12 years um, for the great Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro um, in various capacities from being her staff assistant to most recently as her chief of staff. Um, my main policy focus when I was with her um, were women's economic issues, such as paid family medical leave, paid sick days, equal pay for equal work, and predictable work schedules. But I also handled defense, homeland security, infrastructure, and labor. Um, and then briefly, I left her office to work for New York. New York State Senator as his legislative director, but came back um, to work for Congresswoman DeLauro. So that's me. Liz, wow, you've accomplished quite a bit so far. Um, really enjoy hearing all the different issues that you've worked on. I mean, they span pretty much everything, you know, from cybersecurity to women's economic issues. Um, that's something that it is really important work and, and it's, we enjoy hearing about. I do just want to take a moment to ask. So in our first episode, which if guests haven't listened to yet, they should go back and listen to that kind of introduction that lays out what we're going to do here. Um, Miranda mentioned that part of the impetus for starting 131 and counting was that some women kind of on the Hill or in policy spaces had been experiencing this sort of, you know, old boys club, as they would call it in, in movies. Um, you know, wondering as you span so many different issues and some that, you know, especially dip into typically more male dominated fields like uh, like tech and, and security. You know, have you ever experienced any of those moments while you've been on the hill and off the hill during your policy work? Oh, oh yes. So in, I can only speak to my own experience. And obviously, you know, people have to talk to on the hill, but from my own time, absolutely. There was a go to boys club. Um, I figured that out very early on. I actually started out as an intern. Um, this was back in 2010. And I was applying for jobs at nauseam, networking, working full time as an unpaid intern, living off of my savings. because I actually was in the private sector for a year after graduating. Mm -hmm. um, and I was getting coffees with Hill staff for advice. And I was even told by one person that it was tough for women to get a staff assistant job, which is the entry level position on the Hill. Um, for male members of Congress, because they don't like to have female drivers, because driving is one of the of one of the job descriptions for being a staff assistant, because they didn't want to be alone with them for liability. <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh boy, you know, the majority of the members here are men, um, and that's an interesting criteria. I remember thinking that to myself. Um, but I was that was my first, you know, wake up call. Um, I ended up landing a job with a, a woman. You know, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, who's the woman powerhouse of all women powerhouses, 
So I think I was fortunate that I was not only insulated internally from the good old boys club within my own office, but I was also inspired and empowered to call people out um, just by being associated with her and her name. Um, so for example, once I started, I was her staff assistant and then her legislative correspondent and then her legislative assistant. And I was handling defense, um, which is male dominated. And I would take meetings with outside groups. And their first question was, did you serve in the military? And I thought, huh, I bet male staffers do not get that, get that question. question. Um, and then, um, so furthermore, you know, when I was in a room with other Hill staff, so that was like a one-on-one situation, I would notice that the group would only look at the men in the room when they were giving their pitch, even if I was more relevant or more senior to the conversation. Um, mm. And then one more example, even when I would be staffing the congresswoman, and even though she was more senior than the other senators or members of Congress in the room, or even more relevant in addition to that, in terms of the policy they were discussing or the committee jurisdiction, the group would still only look at the men, members of Congress or senators instead of her, even when she asked the question. Um, and I remember having a conversation with her after and I was like, did you notice? And she was like, yes. And it's like, if that can happen to her on the highest level of our, you know, workplace arena, it can happen to anyone on any level. And, um, and so I would definitely just summarize and say, I definitely felt um, the good old boys, you know, just structural. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing all that. And, you know, I'm sure most people listening, you know, are aware, but just the comments you made about that staff assistant role. I mean, I just want to point that out again, because I mean, that's just really like the ultimate gatekeeping to not be able to get in at that role, just because that's where almost everyone has to start. So, you know, I, I think that just want to emphasize a little bit how much impact that that must have had. Um, and, and, you know, you touched on kind of how it's become structural um, in that space, you know, I, I think about um, how we can, like, how we can overcome these barriers, right? Um, you know, I hope that since, since you had that conversation, that maybe more people have had comfortable having women drivers, but I guess I can't <laughs> say that for sure. And I don't know. Um, you know, in your opinion, just kind of, an, and I'm going a little off script here because I've, you've already kind of just touched on so many of those questions about how some of this old boys club becomes structural and cultural. Um, how is there, have you seen any paths to kind of overcoming that? So you mentioned a little bit about, you know, the Congresswoman empowering you, uh, you know, in your experience, have you seen any examples of ways to kind of, to get around this, to keep climbing the ladder, you know, outside of that old boys club? Have you seen any of that in mm -hmm. your experience? Absolutely. And I should say, like, I even, you know, I became a legislative director for three years, then her chief of staff. So, you know, it's like I I, I was able to move up the ladder despite uh, and largely because I worked for her. But um, I think a, a huge part and something that I can't say enough about my former boss that she taught me on this front is to be a successful woman on any platform. You have to be over prepared. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's and you have to understand and learn how to self advocate. I think in my own experience, I can't speak to everybody, but I feel um, from my own personal experience that our society teaches um, young women to keep your head down and work hard and then you'll just get recognized. Um, and that might not be the case for everybody, but I think mm. that there's um, a gap in self-advocating. Um, and that's something to work through, uh, I think, culturally in our society. I think um, also 
you know, seeing more women in staff positions. Um, so then it looks more quote unquote normal. Um, you know, I had the pleasure of working with two female staff directors for the appropriations committee. That was pretty incredible to see. So I think um, the more we normalize seeing women in these spaces helps. I think um, being aware and and being able to self-advocate. You know, there's that famous quote um, to speak even if your voice shakes. You know, it's like it's finding your voice and making sure that you're heard. Um, but also comes with that is being overprepared because you better know your stuff in this place. You can't just get away with um, winging anything. I think if you're a female, you'll be dismissed pretty quickly. Well, that those are two great pieces of advice. And, you know, as someone that's kind of building my career here in Washington, I can absolutely uh, concur that, you know, advocating isn't easy. You know, that whether that's cultural, also internal and, and more prevalent in women is just kind of that it's hard to ask other people for help or it's it's hard to it's hard to say I'm the best. It's like a very hard statement to make. But if you're really going to advocate for yourself to be at the highest levels and to be in the best roles, you're going to have to wait to find have to find a way to say that. So thank exactly. you for sharing that. And it's a great segue into kind of my next question. Um, so you talked about different representation and staff at Congress. 131 and counting did a recent panel that Liz was on. Um, and you can find the recording at the 131 and counting website. But um, it talked about a couple of different things. And it also mentioned how representative the legislative process is while also covering an interesting kind of niche question about uh, congressional witnesses. But just kind of wanted to touch with you on that panel. And, and you talked about how representative the legislative processes, and now you've talked about how it's so important to see more women staff. I'm wondering, you know, from when you started, how have you seen that change? Are you seeing an uptick in women staff? Are you seeing an uptick in representation? Um, and if yes, how can we keep that up? And if no, you know, is there anything the average, you know, person in Washington or in the country can do to help with that representation? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I saw major progress on this front in my 12 years of Congress. Um, I I really do think that an increase of the diversity of members of Congress and staff contributed to that. Like the more you see, the more you become cognizant of your policymaking and decisions. And the more diversity in our viewpoints that we have, the more diverse voices we have in our policymaking. Um, so I absolutely did take note and it definitely became um, much more uh, defined as, as I, you know, um, continued on through my time in that we needed to see diversity in our witnesses so we could reflect, um, diverse country that we have. Uh, and that includes, um, women as well. I think, um, in 2018, we really saw the most women in Congress, even though it's still pretty abysmal. Uh, it was really exciting to see so many new faces, um, and, you know, when women are at the table, the policy agenda changes. Um, and I think, you know, for things that people can do, your second part of the question for listeners, the number one thing you can do is make your voices heard. That's something that my former boss always used to say is that Congress is a place that responds to external pressure. And the greater their collective voice to change, the more progress we can make. And so I don't, I don't, I think sometimes people discount that their one voice can make a difference. And I'm here to tell you that it absolutely can. You know, one person's voice in a room as we're determining witnesses can change who comes to, we invite to the panel. Mm. Um, and I think that it's not a question of um, intention. I think that if you're a woman 
you know, in that room making that decision, you're more likely to choose women on for a panel because you're conscious of, you know, needing diversity. Um, and so I absolutely have seen progress. Obviously, there's a long way to go. I think, you know, 131 and counting is the type of arena that can make that change because they do bring this into the ether in the conversation. Um, there's so many groups that do the same to make sure that, you know, women have a seat at the table as they should. Thank you so much for sharing that, Liz. And um, I think I, I love hearing that. I think sometimes people start to feel a little discouraged about what can I do. But I think, you know, just that sentence of Congress is a place that returns that response to external pressure is very much true and um, can give people, you know, a sense of ownership and a sense of hope. So thank you for sharing that. It has been an absolute pleasure. I really, you know, I'm, I want to open the floor, you know, if there's anything you want to say or leave listeners with, um, I want to give you the chance to do so. You've had some great, great statements in here that, that I really have enjoyed hearing. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the one thing I'll leave with saying, and thank you so much again for having me and for, you know, making this a central part because it's so critical and something I care deeply about and have worked on for a long time. Um, but I think in terms of representation, the first fundamental thing that women can do is run. And I think there's, you know, a huge barrier with even on that level. And if you don't run, you can't win. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you don't win, you're not in, you know, you're not representing, um, your constituents. So I will just say anyone like me who feels, you know, I'm a natural introvert. Um, I'm one of those people that keeps their head down and works hard and hopes to get recognized. Um, I'm also someone who's had struggled with self-advocacy. And I just want to say that, um, you know, if you're feeling that way too, um, you're not alone and that we are all in this together and that we should support each other. Um, so women should. Well, there you have it. Women should run. We're really grateful for Liz for uh, joining us uh, for that great conversation. And I'm just going to segue into, we have one other guest that's going to join for this podcast episode, and it's Caroline. I briefly touched with Liz on a panel she did with 131 and Counting called A Seat at the Table. A lot of the work from that panel centers around what Caroline is doing, and that's a very niche topic of getting more women to be um, the congressional uh, get, congressional guests during a interview. Here with me, I now have Caroline Bruckner, and I'm going to just turn it over to her, to her to have you guys tell you or have her tell you guys a little bit about, you know, the, the work she's doing and um, a, a little bit about a survey that we're interested in kind of spreading uh, throughout our listeners. So, Caroline, I hand it over to you. Thank you so much. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have the chance to chat about this work, which is directly relevant to the 131 and counting mission and the research that I'm doing. Um, I am a former senior Senate staffer. Ultimately, I was chief counsel of the U.S. Senate Committee on Small Business and Entrepreneurship um, when Senator Mary Landrieu was the chair of that committee. Uh, I left the Senate to move over to American University, to the Kogod School of Business, to be the managing director of the nonpartisan COGOD Tax Policy Center, which focuses on tax uh, and compliance issues specific to small businesses and entrepreneurs. And by now, you're asking yourself, what is this tax lady doing on this podcast about <laughs> women's representation in Congress? Well, let me tell you. Um, 
when I started doing research on women business owners and how they benefit from or don't buy different tax breaks, small business tax breaks in particular, I realized that there had not been enough work done on women testifying as business owners before the tax writing committees. And so in 2017, I got together with a group of students and just started counting how many women had testified before the tax writing committees. Mm. And then the entire effort just snowballed from there because I realized in talking with true legislative and policy experts, political scientists rather, in AU School of Public Administration, that there is a gaping hole of research that has not been done on the congressional committee hearing practice and procedures as it relates to legislative outcomes. And the research that I was doing on women testifying before the tax writing committees could easily be replicated across multiple congressional committees. And so I put together a team of political scientists who are just leaders in their fields on information science and um, data analysis, as well as, um, and that's Jeff Gill, who's a professor at um, AU, and then Karen O'Connor, who is one of, if not the leading authority of women in government. She literally wrote the textbook that is taught um, to first-year political science classes all over the country with Larry Sabato. And she um, she and Jeff and I um, put together a project and a group of really excellent student researchers to start to develop a unique data set to track uh, women testifying before uh, congressional committees in legislative hearings. And our data set is um, what was the subject of the panel that 131 um, and counting organized for us and that Liz spoke on in um, October. And we went from, you know, my original research, which had maybe um, 2,200 uh, witnesses to an entire data set spanning the 110th through the 117th Congresses with um, uh, almost 37,000 witnesses testifying at 7,750 hearings before 16 different committees. And that's a whole bunch of data that enabled us to look at women testifying before these committees, the types of hearings they're testifying at, um, what they're um, testifying on. We tracked um, whether they were a member of the executive branch or the White House or an academic or just a regular person, if they were lawyers, whether or not they represented city, local, state officials, or were Native American, um, if they were part of a think tank. And we looked at um, specific hearings, legislative hearings in particular, uh, that were either general oversight, investigative, legislative, or agency oversight, or a uh, budget hearing. We did not include in our data um, nomination hearings in the Senate. Um, And we had some very, very surprising results. Um, 
And what we determined was that women represented about uh, less than a quarter of witnesses over that entire period, and that nearly 40% of witness panels were only men, whereas less than 3% were women-only panels. And, um, and, And to put a number on that, there were about 3,100 hearings that had manals, so men-only panels, uh, as opposed to just 254 women-only panels. And then when you take out budget and agency oversight hearings, which were commonly comprised of a single representative from a government uh, government agency or the White House, women-only panels uh, only occurred 83 times in legislative hearings. And so- under 1% of all hearings where witnesses appeared identified in this data set had women-only panels to inform Congress uh, about the legislative process. And, you know, that really raises questions about effective representation and equity. And this is only an analysis of gender. We very, very much are looking towards expanding this data set to include race and ethnicity. We started with gender um, <clears throat> because the again the work originated out of my work on um, women business owners. We don't we don't intend to be just really limited to only women, and certainly hope to expand this data set out and make it publicly available for anyone to review the legislative history and the congressional witnesses that testified against or on behalf of a a given legislative proposal in the legislative process. But one big roadblock that we came up against was the reality that not unlike the fact that there had been no work done in the political science academic space on, um, not none, but very little done on the committee process for selecting witness selection There also hadn't been a lot of work done in the United States on the connection between witnesses and legislative outcomes. And this is the big so what question, um, which effectively is who cares about representation and equity issues for witnesses testifying in congressional hearings if congressional witnesses have no impact on legislative outcomes? It doesn't matter. So what? So what we're trying to do now is backtrack and quickly develop a a foundation um, for looking at these questions, which says that, yes, committee witnesses and hearing witnesses do have um, influence, impact, and are relevant to legislative outcomes, which was something that every single panelist that spoke at the October 131 and counting event um, confirmed. It's something that um, uh, I've seen in my own um, work on Capitol Hill, asking, begging, um, pleading um, for all the great um, folks at 131 and Counting and um, their uh, membership partners to take a very quick survey that we've developed um, to talk about their experiences with both uh, the congressional witness selection process, number one, and number two, whether witnesses have any uh, um, impact on legislative outcomes. 
Mm. Wow. Well, Caroline, thank you for thank you for sharing us and giving the rundown of both you and your work. You know, this is really important work and and very um you know, it's something that people don't think about in the everyday, but it impacts a lot more than people think. Um so we are excited that we are going to be sharing this survey around and, you know, encouraging people to take it and help Caroline and American University's research on this topic. As always, thank you for listening as we continue our journey to get more women on the hill. Feel free to connect with us by rating this podcast and checking us out on Instagram and Twitter at 131 and counting. Until next time.